as we continue in our study of Acts, I really want to emphasize the importance of the verses that we now begin to walk through together as we continue on. If you'll remember, when, before we looked at our, uh, the letter that James wrote, we spent our time in Acts 1-8. through 8. And you'll remember that Acts 1-8 through 8 was really important because it gave us the history of the people that James would then be writing to. In fact, he begins his letter and he says, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Because we know their story based on what was written in Acts 1-8, through 8, we know exactly what he's talking about. We know that they are dispersed abroad because of persecution. Uh, after the martyr of Stephen, there was a great persecution on the church and many Christians in Jerusalem fed, uh, fled to other parts of the world. We read that in Acts chapter Eight, it says in verse 1, And on that day a great persecution rose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen, who had been martyred, and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women he would then put in prison. As we read the letter of James, we knew the story of the people he was writing to. And in a very similar way, here in a few weeks, we will begin a study looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. What we look at together as we continue in Acts this morning is the story of the people that Paul will be writing to. And the more we know that story, the more the letter of Galatians will come to life. And so let's pay attention to these people that we will now encounter as that first missionary journey goes into the, the area of Galatia. And let's learn about those Christians that Paul will one day write to. So if you will, turn to Acts chapter 13. And let's begin in verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. It's like a tongue twister in it. Perga, Paphos, Pamphylia. And John left them, John Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they were, went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets of the synagogue, the officials sent, them, sent to, them, to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So as we begin this morning, I want to give you a little bit of orientation to the geography of what's happening in this first missionary journey. As we talked about last week, Barnabas and Mark and Paul were sent out from the church in Antioch. And they left Antioch and went to the island of Cyprus. You remember, they landed on the east side of the island. Should have a picture of that. Yep, they landed there on the east side of the island and they continued all the way westward to the far west side of the island. After they had completed this mission there on the island of Cyprus, they set sail and went north to an area of Perga. Now, Perga is the closest city in the south of Asia Minor. You can kind of see it there at the bottom. We learn in verse 13 that when they arrive in Perga, Mark decides that he's going to return home to Jerusalem. 
Now we later learn Paul's opinion, and Paul's opinion is that Mark didn't just leave the team, he abandoned the team. But I want to remind you, Mark is young, he's inexperienced, he hasn't seen much of life outside of where he grew up in Jerusalem, and already he's probably seen more than he's seen in a lifetime. As they've traveled across the Mediterranean Sea, as they've gone to this island of Cyprus, as they've gone farther north than very likely he's ever been before. And they're probably seeing sayings that are fairly new to all of them. It's what has been difficult at this point now becomes even more dangerous. If you'll notice, they will go north from Perga. And if you can kind of look from this map, you can see that there's an, a, a rugged terrain that they're about to go through. This is a mountainous region. It would not be an easy path for them to take. We, we later learn that it's very likely that, that Paul is actually sick during this time, suffering from something maybe like malaria, which would have been very common during this time and in this area. So here they are in a very difficult situation, about to go into something a whole lot worse. And Mark, who's young and experienced, looks at all this and says, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I'm cut out for this. And I don't know about you, but I'm not so sure that most everyone in this room, including me, might have done the very same thing. We talked about it last week. The Lord calls us to go and make disciples, but it is not an easy path. So Mark makes the decision to return home to Jerusalem. But we learn that Paul and Barnabas continue on in the journey north through that mountainous, treacherous region to Pisidian, where they enter a synagogue in this city. Now, Pisidian was a very uh, important Roman city. It was a very populated city, so they go to the synagogue, and it says that they go there on the Sabbath. Now, what we know from Jewish tradition is they have like a, a liturgy of readings that they go through during certain times of the year. And, and they always read from three specific places. They read from a book of the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. Then they'll read from the prophets, which actually for them begins in, in Joshua. And then they'll typically read something from the Psalms. We see here that after the readings, the officials stand up and invite people to give input. Not much different than what we did at communion this morning. They read a passage of scripture, and then they invite people to, to share things that are on their heart based on what was read that morning in the synagogue. We learn that Paul takes advantage of the opportunity and shares some things based on what had been read. Look at verse 16. And Paul, after having been invited to do so, stood up and motioned with his hand. And he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. 
concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So I don't know for sure, but maybe that reading from the law was from Deuteronomy or Exodus because Paul begins by talking about their slavery in Egypt and he focuses specifically on their deliverance. He reminds them that despite the severe oppression that they were in during that time of slavery, they actually grew to be a great nation. And at an appointed time, God determined that He would rescue them with an uplifted arm. We know from the story that He rescued the people from Israel in a most miraculous way. And yet, over the next 40 years, the people that He would rescue constantly complained that's why it says in verse 18 God put up with them in the wilderness and that's exactly what he did he was very patient because all they did was complain about how much better life was when they were slaves in Egypt (laughs) which makes no sense at all they had everything they needed from the Lord they were led by a cloud by day they were led by a fire by night they had food falling from heaven but life was better in slavery He put up with him, was patient, and eventually led this very stubborn people into the land that he had promised. Just this week, I was reading in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is a passage that begins to talk to the people of Israel just before they are going to enter into the promised land. And in this particular section of Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses goes on to review with the nation of Israel has all gathered together All the blessings, all the blessings that are promised for those who keep His covenant. And then he goes on to remind them of all of the curses. All the curses of those who reject that covenant promise. And this is what he says to them. Listen to this. He says, see, I've set before you today life and prosperity. That's what's happening inside the covenant. As well as death and adversity. That's for those who disobey. And so Moses looks at his people and he says, so choose life in order that you may live, you and all your descendants. And here's how. By loving God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. That's where you find all the goodness built into the covenant. By loving your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. Now, what I found interesting in this passage in Deuteronomy 30 is almost immediately after this uh, presentation by Moses to the people of God, Moses and Joshua withdrew to his tent and there was a private conversation that took place between God and Moses and Joshua. And knowing what's ahead, this is what God said to them. Listen closely. He goes on to the people to, to talk about the people that Moses has just addressed. And he says this. This people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land. They will forsake me. They will break my covenant, which I have made with them. Now, think about that just for a minute. Miraculously delivered. Miraculously provided for. A covenant promise of goodness built into that promise. And yet they forsake him. Why? Why would they do that? 
he goes on to answer that question. Listen to what he says. God explains. He says, For I will bring them into the land of flowing with milk and honey, just like He promised, which I swore to their fathers. Now listen, and as they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn and serve other gods and reject Me and My covenant. When they have eaten, when they are satisfied, when they are prosperous, then they will forsake Me and My covenant. When life is good, they don't need God. And every man does what is right in his own eyes. They forsake God and go their own way. That's precisely what happens during the time of Judges, which Paul refers to in verse 20. During that time of the Judges, God then sends a prophet named Samuel who's intended to guide them. But the people insist that they want a king instead. Why? Because all the other nations have a king and we want to be like them. They are rejecting the covenant promise of God, trying to do things their own way. God sends them a prophet. They say, no, 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 we want a king. And God says, okay, choose your king. And they choose a man named Saul. And let me just say, it was a disaster. He looked like a king on the outside, but his heart was not committed to the Lord on the inside. And as a result, he led his people in the wrong direction. But just like we see in Egypt, once again, God steps in to deliver his people. He once delivered them through the hand of Moses, through that slavery out of Egypt. And now he delivers them through David, a man who he appoints as king, and as we see in our passage, a man after God's own heart. And that's not because David was perfect. We're very familiar with his mistakes. I'll tell you why. It's because David was repentant. Not because he was perfect, but because he was repentant. David confessed his sin and looked to the Lord for forgiveness of his sin. And God made David a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I just want you to listen to what he promises David. He first says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will establish your kingdom and I will build and he will build a house for my name. And we know he's speaking specifically of David's son Solomon because that's exactly what happened. God raised up Solomon, made him a king, expanding the territory of that kingdom greater than it's ever been up to that point. Greater than it's ever been since that point. And he tells him that David or Solomon will build a house, which he did. He builds a temple. And you can go to Israel today, and some of what Solomon built still remains there in Jerusalem. It happened just as God said it would. But God goes on in that promise to explain something more. Listen to what he says. He goes on and says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He tells David, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. From David's lineage will come an everlasting kingdom. A future offspring who will establish an eternal home. That's the promise of God made to David, the king he raised up to lead the nation of Israel. Now look at how Paul continues in verse 23. From the offspring of this man, speaking of David, according to the promise which we just talked about, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. 
after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Paul is proclaiming that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the promise of God. He's the promised Messiah. He's the offspring of David who will establish an eternal kingdom, an eternal home where God's people live. But we know to receive that promise, you have to have a heart of repentance, which is what John the Baptist's ministry was all about. He came to preach repentance to the people to prepare their heart for a Savior. Because here's the deal. Until you recognize the sin in your heart, you will see no need for a Savior. So John the Baptist came to tell people, look, you are not okay There is sin in your heart. And there is nothing you can do to remove that sin. You need a Savior. See, God promised to deliver His people. And that promise was fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's point. Look at how he continues to make that point in verse 26. He says, brethren, sons of Abraham's family. In other words, my brothers and sisters, all those among you who fear God. These are people who may not be Jewish, but are there because they fear the Lord. And he says to us, to all of you, the word of salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, just like they were that Sabbath. It has been fulfilled by those condemning him. And though he found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. It says, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we, he, Paul, being one of those witnesses, preached to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise. Do you see what he's emphasizing? There's a promise made. There's a promise fulfilled for the children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And I just wonder, was that the psalm they read that day? Paul is proclaiming a message of salvation to those in the synagogue that day. He wants them to know that Jesus fulfills the promises made by God. And and even though the people have read the passages in Scripture that spoke of the promised Messiah, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, just as they were doing that very Sabbath, most of them read those truths and move right by the reality that they have in fact been fulfilled. They missed it. In fact, they missed it so much that they executed an innocent man. And by their rebellion... They fulfilled what was written, just as God said it would. Instead of choosing life by loving God, obeying his word, holding fast to him, they chose death. 
chose death, killing the very one God sent to save them. And yet, as only God can do, He used that death as a payment for their sin. So what they intended for evil, intending to put an end to this message of salvation through Jesus Christ, dead and forever, it came alive. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. And he appeared before a number of witnesses. In fact, Paul was one of those witnesses. And we have learned that through our study of Acts. That on his road to Damascus, he was confronted by the resurrected Jesus Christ. So Paul is one of those witnesses that can proclaim with utmost conviction, he's not dead. He's alive. And that promise has been fulfilled. Paul is saying, look, the good news of the promise made to our fathers has been revealed to you. Look at how he continues in verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. There it is. Promise fulfilled. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Thou wilt not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Paul is trying to help them understand that Jesus has fulfilled Everything God said he would do. If they believe in God's promise, if they believe that what God promised was true, that that was actually going to happen, that he needs to, they need to understand that, that Jesus is the one who fulfilled that promise. He is the provision that has been made. And despite their rebellion, despite the fact that they have read these messages, Sabbath after Sabbath, Paul is proclaiming to him, I want you to know, that God sent a Savior to even those who despised Him. He goes on in verse 38 and says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things in which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Paul is closing out his sermon with a call to believe. And I want you to notice how he shifts from these past promises to the, these things that have happened in some, of the, in some cases not too distant past through the person and work of Christ, his death, burial, and his resurrection. But he now turns to the present opportunity. He looks at his audience and he says, let it be known to you today that through Christ you have been forgiven. That through Christ, you can be set free from slavery to sin. That through Christ, you have complete forgiveness. A forgiveness that was not possible under the law. The writer of Hebrews makes that clear. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, For the law, since it is only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year after year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, 
they would have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there, here it is, is a reminder of sins. Year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That was never the purpose. <laughs> the sacrifices were never intended to remove sins. They were to be a reminder of sin so that people continually went to the Lord and chose life. Chose life by listening to what He says, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him. It was a constant reminder that the Lord is your provision. He does what He promises. It goes on in verse 10 of that same chapter. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Now listen, once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the sacrifice which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time on, uh, onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Don't lose that. One sacrifice. Not many sacrifices. Not a repeated sacrifice. One sacrifice for all sins. Not, not some sins. Not just past sins. But all sins. Past, present, and future. Because it goes on. It says, for all time. For all who believe. That's the message that Paul is proclaiming in the synagogue that day. But even as he shares the good news of this message... He also gives them a warning. Look at verse 40. Take heed. Here's the warning. Take heed, therefore, so that the things spoken of in the prophets, maybe this is what they read out of the prophets that day, may not come to pass. Behold, you scoffers, marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though some should describe it to you. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that this might be spoken to them the next Sabbath as well. Just as certain as God's blessing for those who believe is God's judgment for those who do not. It would not be fair. It would not be right. It would, in fact, be cruel to give the message of the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ alone without making sure people understand there's another part of this story. There is a blessing for those who believe. There is a judgment for those who do not. And scoffers, scoffers are the ones who, who hear the promise, who, who see the truth revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ and yet still choose to turn away. And I just wonder if it may be some of those people that are described in Israel that still exist today who are eating, who are satisfied, who are living in prosperity. And so they turn from God and go their own way. Life is good. So why do they need God? What benefit is Jesus to me? Instead of turning to God, they go their own way. That's what scoffers do. And Paul is reminding them, please, don't be one of those people because just as certain as the blessings are for those who believe is just as certain as the judgment for those 
who turn away. As I've thought about this passage this morning, I, I keep going back to what we talked about at communion. That God brought us out in order to bring us in and to give us what He had promised. That seemed to be the point of Paul's first sermon. It's built on the promises of God. God brought us out. He talked about out of slavery. He talked about out of judges. He talked about out of that reign of Saul. God delivered us over and over again. He brought us out ultimately through the person and work of Jesus Christ through whom those promises have been fulfilled. And so that He might give us what He had promised and that is forgiveness of sins. And just as confidently as Paul proclaimed to his audience, I can proclaim to you. Let it be known to you. To you. That through Christ there is forgiveness of sins. Let it be known to you today, in this moment, that through Christ you can be set free from the slavery to sin. That he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And as long as you belong to him, he will set you free. I hope that even if you've heard that voice, that message, that truth a thousand times, that you would hear it fresh this morning. Because God is patient. He always has been. And he does not want anyone to perish. But he wants all to come to repentance. He wants all to recognize their sin and to turn to Jesus as their Savior. To see that he is the promise fulfilled and that he came for you. Let it be known to you that through Christ you can have forgiveness of sins. God brought us out. In order to bring us in and give us what he promised. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. And, and he transfers us in the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. But I think there's an application of that same truth in a different way. This past Monday at our elder invite meeting. Mark did a wonderful job of walking us through the topic of salvation. If you missed it, you missed out because it was really good. One of the things that we did is we took some time to look at passages that help answer the question, what must you do to be saved? And we looked at the, the breadth, of, the, the width of all the ways in which that question was answered. And it was beautiful to see the mercy of God demonstrated in the many ways that He allowed people to come to Him and understand what it means to be one of the things that Mark shared with us that, well, I think I'll hang on to for a lifetime, and as we think about what it means to share the gospel with others, and a lot of times we get nervous about that because we feel like we have to say it a certain way, and we have to follow a certain pattern, and he says, look, what do you want them to know? And he gives us this truth that I want you to hang on to as well, and this is the one I will always remember, and he says this, what you win them with is what you win them What you win them with is what you win them to. So, what do you want them to do? If 
we take that principle and apply it to Paul's message, I believe I can answer that question quite clearly. He wants to win them with the promises of God. He wants them to see that God is faithful to carry through with what He promises He will do. And, and, and all the, the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all that God has said will be true. What you win them with is what you win them to. So, if we trust in Christ based on the promises of God, guess what? We live in Christ based on the promises of God. You see that? What you win them with is what you win them to. And Paul wants to make it clear. We live based on the promises of God. Which is why he can write later to the Philippians and he can say, be anxious in nothing. But in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Here's the point. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And as Mark reminded us in that Monday meeting, he said, notice that there's not anything said about the answer to the request. Because the peace is not dependent it comes through a person. That's the promise. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you feel alone, let me remind you of the promise. That He will never leave you. That He will never forsake you. He is with you. That He is for you. And that He loves you. I can't help but think we walked through a study recently of the baptism of Jesus and we remembered those words spoken by God the Father as he looked over God the Son and he spoke and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And based on the testimony of Scripture and who we are as an heir with Christ, if you are a part of God's family, then I want you to know something clearly this morning. The God the Father stands over you and He says, This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's what He believes about. If you feel confused, let me remind you not to lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. We can go back to what was said to the Israelites, right? And listen to His Word. Obey His Word. Hold fast to Him. And the blessings of God are poured into that relationship you have with your faith in Jesus Christ. If you feel inadequate, as I often do, know that His grace is sufficient. Remember the promise that His power is perfected in your weakness. So in fact, when you are weak, He is strong. If you are in a place where you just, you just simply feel worn out, which this time of year probably is most all of us, right? And let me remind you of the promise that Jesus made. Come to me. Come. All you who are weary and heavenly, I promise Christ based on the promises of God, then you live in Christ based 
on the promises of God. And you can stand on the promises, no matter what life throws at you. So let me encourage you as we close in song this morning that you sing with the conviction of that being true. That you stand on the promises of God. That God is faithful to keep His promises. And as His child, there is goodness built into that design of being rightly related. Always has been. Always will be. And that's ultimately what you were created. Amen?